Force History Podcast. Are you ready to learn, motherfuckers? Hey listeners, this is your host, Devin, and welcome back to the Blunt Force History Podcast. Um, I'm joined by my co-host, Sport, in this garage-slash-recording studio, and we'll be talking about the liberation of France for our first August episode. I want to leave this one off by just saying, sorry, um, we didn't do a second July episode for, like, the 11 of you that are actually listening to this podcast. Um, so yeah, there's that. Um, and from a quick news perspective, from my end, um, work's been crazy, life's been crazy, things have been going back and forth. I turned 29 in late July, so didn't really have time to come downstairs and pump out a quick episode or anything like that. So we're coming back to give you a full episode to start August fresh and to keep things moving. So to introduce the topic, today we'll be talking about the Liberation of France, the Liberation of France in World War II specifically. Um... In a nutshell, this is our first World War II episode. It's actually pretty fitting because the liberation of France and Paris actually occurred in August of 1944. So I figure, you know what? Hey, we missed July, but at least we're rolling into something that, you know, is pertinent and also happened during the month because we're trying to keep that as a sort of theme as we move into this thing. So um, I'm excited. This is a World War II episode. World War II is hands down one of my favorite portions of history. And... I mean, there's so much to talk about. It is one of the most crazy de-evolutions of what humankind can be. So I think we're going to get into it. But first, I mean, what are you going to expect out of this episode? Well, in a nutshell, you're looking at the, the usual, you know, a summary of events. And the thing that's going to kind of break this one apart is that we're not just going to talk about like the obvious impacts. We know that when the United States and her allies invaded fucking France in order to push out the Nazi Germans, we did so to beat the Nazis. And when the Nazis fell over, they had eventually turned into the Cold War and yada, yada, yada. All of that shit is your basic ass historical impact. I think we're gonna try to delve a little deeper and go into the not so average impacts that actually happened when we liberated France and, you know, started the end of the war and how those things kind of went through um, as a whole overall kind of thing. So without further ado, I'm going to kind of introduce the topic. Why the fuck do we have to, you know, liberate France in the first place? What the fuck happened there? Well, in 1939, there was a dickhead named Hitler, and we all kind of know this story, so I'll keep it short, but... Hitler was expanding what he wanted to call the German Reich, the Third Reich, the um, overall kingdom of Aryan peoples throughout the Western world is another way to describe what he wanted to do. And it was a really stupid fucking idea because, well, we already know. So Hitler does his dumb shit. And at the beginning, you know, when they annexed Austria, the world got a little bit scared, but they were like, hey, hey. We're not trying to do another repeat of World War I. Let's see what happens. And Neville Chamberlain rolls out this strategy called appeasement, where they know they have this crazy-ass dictator. They know that he's not really reaching too far outside of his area of influence. And they're not going to stress about the fact that, oh, well, maybe, you know, he might be going a little bit too far. Maybe he won't stop at just Austria. And, of course, he didn't just stop at Austria. And he went into Czechoslovakia next. 
And so he invades Czechoslovakia and he takes back what they call the German Sudetenland. And Neville Chamberlain comes out again and he appeases the Germans. And he gets them to sign a little paper that says, we're done invading people. This is it. We're, we're, it's over. And that turns into the invasion of Poland. And the invasion of Poland, you know, it's something that people don't really talk about. Like, they mention it, but they don't they don't really, like, talk about what this actually meant. Um, the invasion of Poland was significant because Hitler tag-teamed the Polish with the Russians. They signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union, they being the Nazi Germans. And they had this, this relationship and this agreement that both of them would work together in order to dominate Europe. And of course, when you have two just sadistic megalomaniac assholes that are running dictatorships um, together, it, it's like a literal union of evil. Neville Chamberlain, seeing the invasion of Poland as the last straw with the two most evil powers in, in the continent banding together to run over an innocent country, decides, okay, that's it, declares war and resigns as the Prime Minister of England, bringing in our friend Winston Churchill. Churchill and the French band together and they decide to start a war with the Germans. And they set up in their positions that they had built since the end of World War I called the Maginot Line, basically settling in for a slow start to the Second World War. And it doesn't go as anybody expects because the Germans came up with these really badass tanks called Panzer Ones. And these panzers were able to get through terrain that most tanks of the era were not able to drive through. That's important because they drove right through the Ardennes forest in Belgium. And of course, anybody that's followed the history topic or this, this topic specifically before knows the Ardennes is a dense, thick ass piece of forest that the French left completely undefended because they didn't think the Germans were going to come through there. <laughs> So the Germans went through the place they weren't supposed to go through, and the tanks fucking completely bypassed and surrounded the French army. It almost surrounded and, and bypassed the British too, but they got a chance and, and, and a little, little window to run away. And run away they did. They ran to a little French town on the coast called Dunkirk, and they got pinned there for a few days. And as they were pinned there, fighting for their lives, calling home for help, um, Winston Churchill called up his friend at the Admiralty, and the Admiralty scrambled the British merchant marine, basically, and civilian sailors and some British Navy came across the, the channel and picked up these 300,000 or so British troops staged at Dunkirk, got them the hell off that portion of France and, and away from being surrounded. So. The British survive the Battle of Dunkirk. Hitler says, "Okay, this is the moment. We are going to we're going to run over the British too, and we're going to call the Third Reich an official thing, and um, we're going to do it by getting the British to surrender. We're going to beat the hell out of their will, and we're not going to invade England. So we have a willing partner in the world's biggest and most powerful empire. And they start what is known as the Battle of Britain, or." In England proper, they know it as the Blitz. So, German bombers start taking off from the coast of France to bomb the hell out of British cities. And Winston Churchill comes out and he gives his famous Churchill speech, you know, 
We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the fields, and on the landing grounds, and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. That thing. Right? He does his Churchill thing, and that galvanizes the British people and the Royal Air Force, along with some really badass technology called radar, in order to start smacking fucking German bombers out of the sky, in some cases before they're even over English airspace. And that um, turns into a knockdown, dragout fight, because not only are the Germans using their bombers to bomb British cities, they're also using submarines to um, basically blockade British ports. And it's turning into a very, very bad war for England. They're surrounded, their imperial holdings are under threat by um, Italian and Nazi armies going all around North Africa and some of these other places. And what makes it even worse is like the Royal Navy can't do anything about it because there's a bunch of submarines that are traveling in wolf packs trying to bust up any supplies or aid that are approaching England. The United States, to this point, has not been dragged into the war. Um, the Japanese hadn't attacked Pearl Harbor yet. The, the British were relatively on their own. And honestly, they did pretty fucking well, all things considered. Um, even w being surrounded by aircraft and U-boats, and the British Air Force, the Royal Air Force especially, were holding out as best they can as the Germans continued to knock down um, allied powers like Denmark, Norway, and some of the others in their immediate area to solidify their hold over continental Europe. Come 1941, two breakout things happen. One, the Germans decide to break the non-aggression pact with Russia. This is arguably like the fucking dumbest and the most egotistical decision in history that has influenced us forever. But that's a whole fucking, like Operation Barbarossa, that whole invasion of the Soviet Union is worth its own episode. So we'll keep it short here. Um, Hitler decides to attack Russia, takes away a bunch of his forces out of continental Europe and, and pushes them straight after Moscow. And for a while, they do really fucking well. They punch the Russians right in the mouth because they didn't see it coming. And they drive them all the way back into Russian territory through Poland, through Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, through the Ukraine, and straight into places like um, Stalingrad, Leningrad, and those other, those other areas that are now just world-renowned, world-famous. But... The other thing that happens is, December 7th, 1941, the Japanese decide to attack the United States. That happened, again, for its own slew of reasons. Entire podcast episodes can have and should be made about why this happened and what the impacts were, but needless to say, that's enough to drag the United States against Germany's ally. Germany, again, being the idiots that they are, probably could have cordoned off the effects of that attack, like even though Japan was technically allied with the Germans, the Germans probably could have distanced themselves from that very far off ally and said, nah, fuck you, dude, you started that fight, we're not backing you up. And instead, they said, no, nah, fuck you, America, you're helping the, Ger the British, we're gonna fucking fight you. And on December 8th, the Hit Hitler and the Nazis declare war on the United States. That brings the entire Atlantic fleet that was untouched by any attacks by any foreign powers into the war. And like the Germans, let's be clear, 
were extremely fucking cocky about the way that they declared war because in the immediate like month after the war was declared a german u-boat surfaced in new york harbor basically being like fuck you guys we're big we're bad and that started the battle of the north atlantic and the battle of the north atlantic was really one of the largest and most successful naval battles of the war see the atlantic fleet of the united states had to get across to establish or to had to get across the back back across the atlantic to establish a massive logistic base in England to jump off to begin prepping this fight to go fight Hitler in Europe. And because the Atlantic fleet was completely untouched by the Battle of Pearl Harbor, there wasn't any major kind of concerns from that end. They were perfectly the ones to do it. And they partnered up with the Royal Navy and started doing joint patrols to wipe out these submarine blockades around England. Now Hitler can no longer starve the British Isles. And he can't pressure their supply lines that are bringing massive numbers of troops that are being freshly trained from the draft over to fight in North Africa and to fight in, um, or into train to fight in England until 1944, where we have that kind of groundbreaking moment. The Italians are getting rapidly driven out of the war. Mussolini is being identified as an asshole by the Italians, and everything is falling apart for the germans this the russians have turned the tide at stalingrad leningrad and they're starting to push them out of russian territory when the russians call a big summit and they tell the allies hey you motherfuckers we're friends here you need to come back us up because we've lost literally millions of people pushing the germans in this very ego-driven fight at stalingrad out of russian territory so that gets the Americans pulled in and um, the, the Allies buy off on this plan to open up a Western Front in Europe. To do so, they pick the landing point and they, they codename it Operation, um, fucking Operation Overlord, the invasion of, the, of France. And um, Operation Overlord begins, the fucking... United States and England and Canada and several other European countries that have contingents fighting by proxy for the Allies in the war begin training to go across and invade a place called Normandy. Normandy is a pretty renowned spot because it's been invaded by several leaders or by several armies over time and that's the entry point into France and that was the heaviest defended position until um, General Patton's ghost army made a bunch of fucking ruckus and fake movements to off-balance the German defenses to Calais instead of Normandy. And a giant influencer intelligence operation kind of forced them to pivot to another location so that the actual invasion force could land with less opposition at the beaches. This is where shit gets interesting. I mean, obviously, we all know what happens, right? The Americans get into their boats, they steam across the channel overnight on June 5th. While the dudes are steaming across the channel on June 5th, the um, 101st and 82nd Airborne Divisions fly over. They do their, you know, rear area attacks against places like St. Michel and some of these other deeper hinterland places on the French farmlands behind Normandy Beach. And they start clearing out these artillery positions so that 
our landing craft and our, our, our crews can land with less damage. Now, that doesn't necessarily work. You have Omaha and Utah Beach for the Americans, Juneau and Gold Beach for the British, and Sword Beach for the Canadians. If I remember correctly, I might be backwards, and if I am, I'll issue an apology, but the Allies have their five landing beaches, and the Americans at Utah and Omaha get punched in the mouth. We weren't able to get any tanks across the, across the channel. Um, the German defenses were prepared extremely well, even if they were undermanned. And um, the first wave was almost catastrophic enough on Omaha to call off the entire invasion um, at that moment. But thanks to some ingenuity, ingenuity and some small unit leadership, we created a fucking um, seam where we could push more reinforcements. The second wave landed within that seam, and eventually we ripped that seam wide open to create a, a beachhead and then push inland. So, despite how bloody the first wave was, the um, really all the beaches are secured by some incredible courage and just insane, just in, in the moment inventions by small unit leaders across that battle space. From there, um, it becomes a knockdown, drag out slugfest. I mean, the entire bit of terrain from Normandy to Paris are cities, which some of which like Cherbourg, we had to secure for port entries and things like that to continue logistics flows into the country. And then others were um, kind of these farmland defenses, right? You have um, a really big kind of spance of France that is hedgerows or what they're called. They're basically massive hedges that line streetways and lines of communication where German soldiers in half tracks and armor would hide between the allied forces and where they were moving. And it became this knockdown drag out, you know, maneuver warfare fight through these hedgerows. I mean, it was not an easy advance. And these dudes just clawed, trudged, fought, and dragged, and fired their way through these hedges to basically claw their way till Paris. And it actually happened pretty rapidly. Um, in comparison, the First World War, for basically two and a half of the three years of the conduct of that war, with some exceptions being 1914 and 1918, um, was entirely fought in Northern France and in Belgium. Four years of conflict happened in less than 100 miles of territory. The Allied forces invading France clawed hundreds of miles thanks to artillery, um, targeted air power, and a lot of um, just really intelligent small unit tactics that they knew would work against the Germans' blitzkrieg or lightning warfare as well as some strategic pressure from the Soviets on the Eastern Front to keep their manpower down on the Western Front, allowed us to basically find holes, find niches, and use industrial power to punch through all of these locations time and time again, no matter how many advanced tanks and, and other capabilities the Germans were able to throw at us. And that got us to Paris, which effectively sealed the liberation of France. So all of that happened over the course of about two months. Again, it would, that was a super, super critical moment 
in that portion of the war. I mean, the fall of Paris had everybody believing that by Christmas 1944, the war would be over. And the Allies set up a bunch of, you know, kind of follow-on operations and, and follow-on activities to keep the Germans on the back foot. And in the immediate kind of impact section that we have getting us through France and getting us through that massive battle in that massive war that we haven't seen since and I hope we really don't. Um, the big thing was capitalizing opportunities, right? And that one of those efforts was sending several airborne divisions, the British Red Devils and the 101st and the 82nd to go take um, the Netherlands from the Nazis. We got a bunch of dudes up into, in, up into planes. We flew them into the Netherlands. We conducted a airborne landing into a very well-defended Denmark and got punched in the mouth. And all those guys had to retreat or surrender. And um, the Dutch, sadly, were not freed until um, quite some time afterwards, more closer to the end of the war. And they endured a pretty hellish occupation while all of that was going on. Um, so that was the first impact, right? Not everything happened um, cleanly, despite the fact that like, that's how it's portrayed more often than not, or that's how it was portrayed for a very long time. That the following operations weren't clean, they weren't cut and dry, and neither was the landing. And that led to a lot of casualties, and it really led to cementing for the U.S. and everything else what their kind of leading roles would be as they move forward, um, historically kind of punching through into the Cold War. And that, that paradigm shift and that, that kind of attitude in Europe that changed after the occupation of the Nazis and the conclusion of World War II led to a rise of what people have grown to call kind of democratic socialism in Europe and obviously the rise of NATO. Um, that kind of conflict, that much bloodshed, um, that much destruction and everything else led European governments specifically to really decide that taking care of the people and playing less and less around with external parties as you know the Nazi regime kind of collapsed and order had to be restored it, it kind of put the the government's sort of determination to protect the individual at the head of all the efforts that they do and this happened almost universally across the continent um, there's there's a few exceptions obviously with the neutral powers like Spain Switzerland and also with some of the powers that were involved um, where there were still some dictatorial governments in Europe. But by and large, the policy is we have a democratic government, even if we have a royal family, and that democratic government's job is to set policy that takes care of people and makes the quality of life good enough to where we don't have to fight these big ass wars and we don't have to maintain a standing army. However, you know, they're not completely naive. They know, like, sure, our people went through a bunch of shit and we do have to recover, but we do need to depend on somebody. And that's where NATO comes in, right? A, 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 a ubiquitous or, or um, unifying self-defense agreement across the entire North Atlantic that says 
all European powers will defend one another no matter what, right? If one, if one of us is attacked, all of us are attacked, and we're going to step up and fight whoever's attacking us, i.e. Russia, right? So that invasion and all of those actions solidified the U.S.'s presence in Europe specifically, but also kind of our role leading into the Cold War and um, all the kind of little hybrid conflicts that happened afterwards as the quote-unquote Team America World Police. Um, nobody fucking likes it, but the reality is the greatest generation in World War II put us into that position. Um, and that's one thing that I don't think historians really extrapolate much. You know, you hear a lot of people say, well, the Cold War brought about the Soviet Union, it brought about these arms races, it brought about all this other stuff, and everybody kind of glazes over the fact that Western Europe writ large, just like they do today, is standing with us, at least in policy perspective, in order to secure their destiny. And we, being the bigger, badder dog, are providing them an umbrella of security um, via our massive armed forces so that these democratic socialist kind of, you know, all, all pro-people policies can sort of sustain and survive without having some sort of existential threat pointing down at them all the time. It doesn't always work. You know, you can't control the actions of the Russians. You can't control policy shifts in the U.S. government or just sheer dumb American fucking idiocy sometimes. But that's the intent of NATO. That's why things are there. We are there to protect our friends. And um, it, it kind of falls to us to maintain that global presence, to maintain those alliances, and to help you know, what we would call free peoples around the world, maintain that freedom. Um, even with the fluctuating um, environment that is the international community and all of the threats that come from a thousand different directions. And even with all that being said, um, those geopolitical kind of implications aren't the only thing that... Um, happened from that because it also pulled the U.S. out of its isolationist mindset, right? Since then, um, the U.S. has shifted in a drastically short timeline from being this super isolationist country that doesn't want fucking anything to do with anything outside of our fucking wheelhouse into instant world player today. You know, even World War One did not have that kind of an impact on U.S. policy because we let World War II happen for two years before we were even sucked into the fucking thing. So that was the moment, you know, that 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 sort of liberation of France and that reconstitution of allies and, you know, the, the, the continued fight against Nazi Germany and the Japanese out in the East um, really kind of spurred that overall... Um, that overall paradigm shift and, and, and caused that um, caused that policy change in the U.S. So all of these things tie together. You know, it, it, it's a massive holistic thing and it's a massive holistic justification for, honestly, a lot of the reason why the world is the way it is today. Um, there's a reason 
that a lot of folks can literally draw a line between permanently Western countries, former Soviet Union countries that are trying to be Westernized, and Russian countries or Russian-influenced countries in Europe today, because it all depended on who fell within those geopolitical impacts for the continuation of those tensions in the Cold War. You know, um, those things are all clear distinguishing factors that you can point out about a country and say, yeah, you know, these folks are, are, are former Soviet. They're trying to recover from 70 years of being under a very, very authoritarian regime. And they're working through a lot of policy things. Whereas if you look at like Denmark or Switzerland, even though they were neutral, they were technically under an umbrella. And um, like Portugal, Spain, Italy, any of these guys, they're, you know, unified under an umbrella. They have a lot of, you know, friendships and allegiances and, and alliances and stuff like that. And the trade and the civilian stuff that follows all of those things as investments is it's blatant you know even domestically the investments they receive turns into more positive people policy not to use too much alliteration but it helps drive things forward and that's really kind of the 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 crux of this episode or or the key to it is everything's interrelated all of us are tied together um and all of it is tied back to history you know all the things that happened led to this moment where it's a completely unified effort um, internationally to take care of one another, I guess you could say. Now, we're not a politics podcast. I'm not going to fuck around with the other shit that happens inside the United States where, you know, there are several other instances of, well, you know, why aren't the U.S. doing that? It's like, well, that's another conversation for another day in another fucking realm. But by and large, that's how Europe happened. That's what happened in Europe. That's how things have, you know, changed and benefited them. Now, to me, I think all of those things are, um, turning points in society and in in the world, right? And, And this is kind of that last, I think true impact portion of that portion of World War II, right? The investments flow in, the military alliances flow in, that that kind of collective defense thing where everybody stands up and creates an umbrella for the average dude to grow is a completely unheard of concept. And it's never worked. If you listened to our Blunt Force History bonus episode where I actually previewed portion of the book um, this gets into that portion where military alliances are super complicated right there's a reason it never happened to the scale beforehand um, it's so difficult to break down national pride you know it's it's so difficult to get past basic human hubris and um, establish something that stands for decades arguably will be centuries um, in order to preserve rights and freedoms for the people, not in your country, but in your country, countries the next door, countries overseas from yours, and so on and so forth. You know, it, it, it is truly an investment in the goodwill of all mankind 
when you're doing something like that. Um, that is, um, that's just a fancy way of saying like, it's important because we're starting to see people as people, you know, and that whole globalism thing that some folks like to freak out about was a very real policy that we stood up for um, all the way back in the 40s and 50s, where yes, the U.S. had its its kind of role and share of the industry, and we produced a lot of stuff, but. You know, in policy, we wanted other people to produce too. We want to be able to benefit from everything else that's going on around us. You know, there's no way that we're going to get past it unless we're able to modernize and globalize and um, work together. You know, and we're seeing that with the climate. We're seeing that with modern international relations. We're seeing that even in the Olympics, you know, today. Um, all of these things going on, it, it, it's a good reminder to step back every once in a while and say, huh, you know, I may not necessarily speak the same language or have the same culture or interact with somebody, but, you know, there, there's a basic recognition there that we are obligated to advocate for their interests at best, defend their interests if necessary, and that probably means we should respect them as people so that we can actually do that and be invested in it. Um, from my purely military career perspective, that's how I've gotten past a lot of, you know, kind of personal questions um, that I've had to ask myself throughout my time operating in various places. You know, we're there to invest in other folks, even if it is standing a post with a gun somewhere that you think you have no business standing post with a gun at. And um, I think over time, or I hope over time, that that attitude starts to proliferate more and we all start to look at each other with that goal of I'm going to build this person up and and invest in his success rather than, you know, shit all over him because I don't understand anything about him. Um, And I think we're slowly getting there. So always carry some hope. But I think this messaging about hope and stuff is going to be the next step into our segue for plugs and other good shit. Um... Coming around to positive stuff, this might be a little bit old if I take a look at my quick notes. Um, obviously, for plugs, we have our social media. Checks us out on for, on Twitter at force underscore history and at Facebook at blunt force history. Um, those haven't changed. Um, those will not change. And if you're new picking up this podcast, I'm obviously going to apologize for audio quality and stuff like that from before um we're changing that now i might have some more time to talk to kraus and stuff like that in a future episode um and all of it will be well and good but as far as like the good shit portion of our plugs piece goes um it was hard to find a charity that does anything for july um what i guess you know, July and August kind of have in common is that they're really good summer months. They're happy, happy times. It's hard to think of people to donate for, I guess. Um, there were some causes, but honestly, they were kind of low key compared to the ones that we plugged before. So I guess I came up with a new thing and that is I am challenging you to champion your cause on our social media. So come find us, like, especially on Twitter, tweet at us and tell us what you want to do. Tell us what things you want to affect. And I will lead the way. So tweet at us, Blunt Force History, after you listen to what I want to do. So 
my goal as a person to have all this positive impact shit and put my money where my mouth is, besides putting on the stupid fucking uniform that I wear to make a paycheck, is to um, create a national disability advocacy charity. I want to be able to um, do several things from, you know, interacting with the larger and more specific disability charities to interacting with um, manufacturing companies and even manufacturing stuff on our own to make a nonprofit sort of effort that gets medical supplies and medical needs seen for disabled folks around the country. Because if there's one thing I've realized with my kids, it's that the American health system is trash and it needs as much fucking help as it can get. So in the long run, probably, you know, five to 10 years from now, I'm looking at standing up a national fucking charity. That's what I want to do. That's where my money is. And that's that's where I'm going to end up leaning towards. Um, but let me know what you want to do with the world too by tweeting at us on the Twitter board. Um, as far as final thoughts for this podcast goes, this one might run a little bit short. Um, as always, thank you all for listening. Um, it's a pleasure. And... I don't know if you noticed, but I kind of just hit the record button and fucking go. Um, I usually give myself some sort of an outline and then I let myself go, just talk through all of these various impacts and how things are interconnected and, you know, the little things that made me go, oh, that's so cool. And maybe somebody else will think it's cool. So um, I nerd out. I nerd out off script. And the fact that you guys can put up with that shit is actually really impressive. Um, Thanks for sticking around. And clicking that play button once every couple of weeks. Um, everything else, um, you matter. You know, that, that's a big one I like to close out with. You matter. Um, mental health is a big fucking deal. There's a lot of stuff that um, I've had affect my life from that from that respect. Um, lost too many friends to their own internal battles. So if you need to hear it, you know, stick around, you matter, we want to see you. And then, as always, fight the good fight, um, like I just challenged you to do, and, you know, per the par for the course kind of thing, also learn from your history, please, for the love of God. Um, I don't really know what you will learn from your history, but, you know, take take kind of inspiration from what we're doing here and how we talk things through and think about why the fuck does this really matter? You know, what, what, what is this fucking event from 300 years ago actually trying to tell me why did my teachers make me sit down and learn about this? Or why haven't I heard about X, Y, and Z? Um, we're seeing, we're seeing it boil down every year now for the past five, 10, maybe even 15 years where a kind of weird, almost niche historical event has come out to the foreground as a driving thing for the country and we have to scramble and figure out why the fuck we didn't know about it because it wasn't taught to us in school school um the one i'm really thinking of right now is the, the tulsa race massacre that happened to black wall street in tulsa oklahoma i mean the whole thing was just uh terrible you know it was just the fact that that's not fucking taught in school you know despite the things that are, the little shit that we learn. Um, kind of sad. Might do an episode about it, but I'm not sure I'm qualified to. So I might find an ep- a guest that can talk about it better than me. I don't know. Um, TBD, <laughs> as they say. So as things move on, 
Um, we appreciate your support and looking forward to hearing any feedback or any causes you guys would like to champion. Let us know, tweet at us, and hit us up. Also, check out Indie Podcasts and just get on your fucking average podcast thing. Search for things you like and find people you want to listen to. Every single one of us are out here doing this to entertain people and to get our views out there. So, um, support us, you know, come out, invest your time in us at least to keep yourself entertained. Um, if I'm not that fucking entertaining, I don't give a shit because I'm in my fucking garage with my dog. So, um, until next time, y'all have a good one and, um, you know, learn from your history. Stay frosty guys. the blunt force history podcast you're probably confused as shit right now but so are we tune in next time to figure out what kind of shit happens next